0: Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the breath of truth, refuge, and hope that we have in your Holy Scriptures. Even as we sang this last song of penitence from the Psalms, we're reminded that you give us a voice to speak and a heart, Lord Jesus, to offer to you and affections to entertain thoughts, to think, Lord, worship, to offer before You in Your Scriptures. We thank You that You have taken us, Lord, from a state of deadness and depravity and enmity with You. And You are sanctifying us, Lord, to be those who represent You and worship You and are changed into Your likeness and image. We thank You that this began at a resurrection event where we were brought back from the death of sin into the newness of life in Christ Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. This morning as we study Your Scriptures, I pray that You would illuminate them to our heart. Our minds are too short-sighted, Lord, and our frailty to understand the depth of what You've revealed. But by the power of Your Spirit in us, You can work past those mental roadblocks and write on the tables of our heart the eternal truth of Your name and Your glory and Your renown and Your plans and the prophecies and the fulfillment and the salvation in our Messiah that is revealed in the pages of Your Holy Word. Thank You for this time that we have. We pray that You would use a delivery and the hearing of the Word to the honor of Your great name, that You might change all of us, Lord Jesus into its according to its standard and equip each of us to declare its truth faithfully in our lives proclamation and obedience in Jesus name we pray amen what a gift and grace this opportunity is for us today to study God's scriptures together and to worship together in one accord on account of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This morning, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, or we'll go to 22. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 22. There's a passage of Scripture that deals with an issue. that's going to be known as church discipline. Another synonymous term could be church self-government. How does God call His church, the institution of His people, His gathered assembly of those redeemed in Christ's blood, to order their affairs and relationships with each other? And what about and what ha, uh, has He provided by way of tools for reconciliation and navigating difficulties, conflicts? We still deal with the remnants and effects of sin in this life, even post-regeneration. But God has not left us without effective tools to navigate the sometimes muddy waters, the conflicts in our own souls and our predisposition toward selfishness, so that we might act in loving ways one toward another. But it is imperative for all of us and His church to return to the uniform, unchanging standard of His Holy Word, so that we might, by this rule of faith and practice, have our interaction with one another set aright so that agreement is possible in Christ's Word, and not just on our own feelings, emotions, and impressions, so let's read his word together. stand with me if you would, and let us read Matthew chapter eighteen verses fifteen through twenty two If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. if he does not listen. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth as touching anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verse 21, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus answered him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times. Times seven. This is the infallible word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message, drawn from these verses, is How to Press Charges. How to Press Charges. That, of course, is legal language in our culture. If someone has wronged you and you feel that it's justified, you bring evidence to a court, and thus the proceedings are called pressing charges. There is a recourse for pressing charges in relationships within the church, and Matthew 18 gives us that basic formula. How do we press charges in the church? Well, we see the context and we see the basic principles laid out before us in this section of Jesus' delivery in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew presents us with discourse number four in Jesus' teaching. Five big blocks of Jesus' sermon material are recorded and become the kind of framework around which this gospel is structured. And now we're here in the center of Matthew's discourse, or Matthew chapter 18, which includes discourse number four. And we can see very clearly that the theme of this discourse is the church. And the church has been alluded to to, to, of two or three witnesses. The standard of offense emphasized here is objectivity. It is not, this is a great bane on the church today. It's a, it's a great blight in our relational interaction that we've allowed selfish psychosis and psychological ideals to creep into our value system, church. Oftentimes, we consider an offense legitimate just because of the way something makes us feel. I mentioned this more than once. It's not original to me. certainly a scriptural principle, I would say, but I've gleaned it from John Piper. He, I think, insightfully said it this way. If we reserve the right, we even talked about this a bit this morning, or in morning prayer, if we reserve the right for ourselves to define sin according to how we feel about something, what does that make us? Well, consider this question, what is sin? The Confession says a sin, sin is the transgression of the law of God. If sin, by definition, its intrinsic reality in essence is that it is breaking the law of God. And we want to take, reserve the right to define sin. What does that make us? It makes us God. We set ourselves up as the new lawmaker. It doesn't matter if there's evidence, we tell ourselves. It doesn't matter if there's two or three people that can testify to the wrong. I feel a certain way. And by the basis of my feelings, I deem that this is an offense and something must be done about it. That is illegitimate. A biblical offense, one that is truly one that needs to be dealt with, meets the standard of objectivity where it can be testified to by something of evidence and more than just one person. Not subjective, individual emotion, but again, the Word of God applied to the situation. Not just the way we happen to feel about something, because that may be simply a misunderstanding, or we may have, in our, uh, sens- in, in our sensibilities, in our misjudging the situation, we might have considered the motivation of something coming our way totally different than what was intended by the object of our animosity. This is, of course, corroborated by apostolic application as well. That is, the commandment not to move forward in these cases without a testimony of the ability to have two or three witnesses. We've covered this in preaching in our last year as we move through 2 Corinthians. But the, the problems in the Corinthian church certainly abounded, and there were many opportunities. Paul had said in just a few verses... Prior that, he was concerned that quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder would break out among them. He saw that the landscape and the relationships of this church was fraught with opportunity for offense. I fear that when I come to you again, he says in verse 21 of Second Corinthians 12, my God may humble me before you that I might have to mourn over many those who have sinned early and have not repented. Then here's this list of indulgence, sins of indulgence, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality that they have practiced. He says, 13.1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Then here it is. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He encourages people, rather than be so excited about Uh, examining your brother, to examine yourselves. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The weight of biblical instruction to us is to consider our own heart. I don't know what the percentages are, but I would say at least 90% to the 10% of our concern about others' hearts towards us, or others' actions towards us. In our sin, we are more prone to consider far more majority of our thought process given, judging the way others are approaching us than considering our own frame of mind. And Paul's saying once you get these reversed, you have a prescription, you have a way forward for functionality in this church, but so long as you keep charging each other arbitrarily without the testimony of two or three witnesses, there's going to continue to be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, conceit, and disorder rising up among you. 2 Timothy 5.19 also commands that two or three witnesses be brought. But finally, under process and jurisprudence, I want to turn you to Deuteronomy 19. Because where does this idea of two or three witnesses come from? Well, Jesus is incorporating an Old Testament standard of justice. And this, again, reminds us that when Christ speaks the message of the kingdom, it's in covenantal terms. He does not... You take his gigantic eraser in his uh, sovereign prerogative out and everything up to Malachi just expunged from the record. But indeed, as he has said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he has come not to abolish, but to fulfill, to establish indeed the law. So what sort of things are operative and in are interoperative uh, relationships between one another that we can glean from the law. Well, this concept of two or three witnesses is certainly one of them, and we read of it in Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen to the end of the chapter. A single witness, we are told in this instruction as to how to handle court cases, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses Shall the charge be established if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in these day, those days the judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother in other words the crime that is due i'm sorry the punishment that is due the crime the false witness Is accusing this person of, he will get if he's accusing him falsely. High standard of integrity in God's rule here. So you shall purge the evil from among, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the promise here, sewn into these commandments, is that if you follow God's standards of jurisprudence, you will begin to purge the evil from your midst. Paul knew this and declared it in Second Corinthians at the end of the chapter, the close of the book. Jesus Jesus knew it and incorporated it in His instructions that His church must be lowly, must be loving, must be lawful, and long-suffering. Finally, verse 20, Deuteronomy 19, And the rest shall hear, and here it is again, and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And there again you see, when the fear of the Lord is promised in the reaction of the people... When offenses and disagreements are handled rightly, we see that even in our disagreements, even in our rough patches, the Lord can be glorified so long as we follow his means when we are in these stages of life. Finally, verse 21, your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's the principle of proportional justice. So there is the background and context from the Old Covenant and the apostolic record of what jurisprudence, right judging, and right dealing with issues within the body of Christ looks like. Number three, under four meaningful elements of Jesus' teaching and conflict resolution, we've covered the idea that we're family and thus we're obligated to offer the judgment of charity. Also, we just considered the process that, that Jesus prescribes and how it is. Incorporating the standards of jurisprudence in scripture number three let 's consider the punishment sanctions, something that makes the oath binding and also authority. Reading again in matthew eighteen seventeen through twenty If he refuses that is the offending party to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church there 's two terms here that he is that Jesus employs. Uh, to identify this offender, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I say to you, if the two of you, if two of you agree on anything, on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. First of all, consider this Gentile and tax collector as two terms of identity metaphors, if you will, to uh, describe the person who has made an offense and is unrepentant, a legitimate offense has found to be such after going through the process of biblical jurisprudence. Consider these terms Gentile tax collector and also consider the sanction or the punishment excommunication, which is they are no longer allowed within the fellowship of the believing community. Historically, in churches that have tried to be faithful, endeavored to be faithful to Christ's commands and the apostolic application of these truths, there have been three stages of punishment. And roughly speaking, these are in place as a framework to deal with abuses within the church. The first stage is to admonish, simply to bring the word of God. As Paul says that it is sufficient for rebuke, for repute, uh, for... Rebuke and reproof for instruction and training of a young man in righteousness. That's step one. We admonish and encourage with the Word of God. Rebuke and instruct according to the standard of the Scriptures. Step two, there can be an intermediary step that some have taken, which is to exclude from the Lord's Supper for a time until repentance is evident. This has been called the fencing of the table, as it were. And number three, if these do not prove persuasive to draw this individual who is in his sin to repentance, the third stage is expulsion or separation from fellowship, excommunication. And it was written in the notes in my Bible, and I think this is a great summary statement. In conclusion then, ultimately the only sin warranting excommunication, what is the only sin ultimately that separates any church from attendee from membership in the body of Christ, it is unrepentance. Unrepentance. When the word of God is clearly brought to our clear infraction, our clear sin, and we do not repent, that is ultimately the only sin, the final uh, parting of ways then becomes necessary. Think of what that means for us to the degree that someone repeatedly stumbles and falls, annoys us to no end because of their idiosyncrasies, their besetting sins, their predispositions to all kinds of behavior. Yet they come back and they tell you, I was out of line, I apologize once again, I hope I don't have to do this again, but don't be surprised with my track record if I don't call you in two days with the same thing. What are you obligated to do? Well, the verses following our section here tell you as much. How often should I forgive? Seven times? Peter probably thinks that's a pretty high standard. Christ says 70 times 7. 490, which is to say indefinitely. And so, we are called to suffer with one another no matter how long and arduous our sanctification process is, no matter how unruly and crazy our children are running around the church. And we are called to do it with patience and endurance, no matter the cost. And that is a privilege. You have only to think about the grace of Jesus Christ applied to your life to bring you back to your first love and to set your perspective and patience and endurance and long-suffering and attitude of forgiveness aright towards the offending brother or sister so under this I wanted to give you this quote as an example of church discipline in real time in church history. There was a time in Calvin 's Geneva, where libertines these were French people who wanted liberty without Jesus Christ were in blatant rebellion with the church. but in Calvin 's Geneva, the church was often populated by these types of people. They were not in good standing with the Lord. They were blatant rebels against the Word and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Yet they obstinately attended and said, What are you going to do about it? We will take communion. Well, there was one particular day, John Calvin, as we're told, a frail and often sickly man, certainly not imposing in his frame and stature by any stretch of the imagination. Yet a man, as we read in Scripture, more often than not imbued with the authority of the Word of God, if his lengthy commentaries and writings are any measure. We see him standing there, and you can get this picture of these libertines, these men that are coming to the pulpit, haughty, mocking, and their attitude is obstinate against Jesus Christ. They are not the lowly of heart. They are unrepentant sinners, and they're coming up to partake in the Lord's Supper. At this moment... In the middle of the service, Calvin burst out and spoke thus. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. And he threw his body physically over the cup, over the bread, And denied access to the table to these belligerent men who were approaching him. I guarantee in that moment there were many who feared the Lord. Every time I hear and reread that story it sends chills up my own spine. It's to illustrate to us the seriousness of what it means to be a church member of Jesus Christ. If you are bought With his precious blood. It is the most secure and binding tie. But there is no substitute for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone to bind his church together. Woe to the churches. Woe to the churches that throw the doors wide open to the table of Jesus Christ to the unrepentant. And I'm not saying that we can police. The hearts of men, God knows what I am saying with our instruction and with our obedience, with our church order, and with our diligence, we can communicate a high value that those who stand opposed to Christ and repentant in their sin ought to be treated as a Gentile a tax collector and excommunicated. This is drastic language. Think of this, Gentile and tax collector. Jesus loved these sort of people When they were in the world. Why? Because they often knew their shameful lifestyle was deserving of reproach. And they repented. But why is Jesus calling the unrepentant sinner, in this case, a Gentile and a tax collector? It's because they were deserving of reproach. Even the reproach of the church. Because they were not surrendering to Jesus Christ. And when the word of God was brought to bear. Their stony heart only got harder. It did not soften to the appeal and to the grace of the gospel. And so in that case, the harsh indictment against those who fall into that category is that they have made themselves a despised and a reproached member from the fellowship of the beloved. That is not to say that we don't pray for these people. Indeed, we see again in the apostolic record that the whole goal of excommunication is to pray and to plead with the Lord and to cry out with grief and tears that they might be restored. But there is a high cost to obstinately refusing to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. A high cost indeed. I often wonder these days if we even think it's a high cost. If someone said, you better get your life right or you can never go to church again, the average American might respond to you, hey man, It's a privilege to any pastor that I attend his church. Hey, you know, like people in the pews, money in the offering, that's my right to grant, and it's his privilege to receive. Wrong. Wrong. Pastor is not Lord of the church. He does not front a business model. He does not market this operation to some demographic where the customer is always right. This is Jesus Christ, holy and purified, bride by His blood who is to submit to him for the washing away and the erasing of spots and blemishes. And it is a glorious privilege to be in unity with that people. And if we take it as just optional and a right that I have to refuse, I'm going to watch church on television or keep my healthy distance from all those hypocrites. We are in a grave state of soul. We are rendering ourselves a Gentile and a tax collector. We're excommunicating ourselves from the grace of Jesus Christ that comes through the assembly of the beloved. And I pray that those who struggle in that deceptive frame of mind would realize would realize the danger of that state. And as they do, and as they repent, that they would realize the great blessing and privilege of joining together in sweet communion in Jesus Christ as His blood-bought bride. And I hope that's all of our attitude this morning. Secondly, under sanctions and authority, there is strong language that Jesus also delivers to communicate that what the church does, if it follows God's scriptures, is authoritative. It's serious. Whatever you bind on earth, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is chapter 16, verse 19, expounded, where Peter, as a representative apostle, received the metaphorical keys of the kingdom. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we see here then in the context that binding and loosing is related to the idea of overseeing doctrine, rightly dividing and preaching the holy word of God, and also imposing discipline where necessary. Thus the binding and loosing are serious calls of the church. Christ take them seriously, And when they are done, indeed, verifiably, in His name, according to Scripture, heaven says amen with the obedience of the church. Finally, the authority and the name of Christ is such that He stands in heaven like a notary public, if you will. What is a notary public? Well, in our legal system, it is an official witness Someone who has authority to certify the authenticity of this oath or this covenant or this legal transaction that's taking place. Jesus Christ is present and stands with His notary seal to stamp the disciplinary proceedings. He's acting as the official witness, certifying what's going on and its authenticity when the church is policing itself correctly, dealing with systemic sin and issues and so on. Many have considered this verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them, out of context. And it's not that when two or three are gathered in Christ's name that the presence of God isn't here. But in context, this verse deals directly with church discipline. The presence of God is certainly with you, believer, when you are all alone, when you are there individually praying, you don't need to meet with another individual or two or three in order for the presence of God to be appreciated reality in your life. But here again, remember the context of two or three witnesses? The idea is Jesus is blessing with his presence the two or three who are gathered to do rightly by his word with issues in the church. And so it is serious. And God blesses our obedience in this regard with His presence. Finally, let us temper, not because we should outside of the context of Scripture, but let us temper some of the sharp edges of what I've just delivered with the contextual tempering that we see as bookends before and after what has just been delivered to us. Consider, first of all, again, Matthew 18.10. See that you do not despise these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? Listen to this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? If he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. So it will not be the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish That is the parable that immediately precedes these rules on lawful resolution of disputes in the church. That's a bookend, if you will, that provides a compassionate context. In other words, church discipline, correctly applied and submitted to by all parties, has restoration as its aim. Church discipline is a means to rescue the spiritual stray. Church discipline can be the very means to bring that one lost sheep who is wandering in his obstinance and his own will away from the comfort of the fold, back into the fold. Thus, that parable and the instructions that follow, I submit to you, go together. We see in Galatians 6.1, You who are faithful, I believe, is the term restore the brother who's gone astray. We see also 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11. through 11. There is very distinct and gross sin that's been con- committed to the degree of incest. Yet upon repentance, Paul commands the church, charges them to forgive, to comfort, and to affirm, thus discipline. Both the apostolic record and the context here has restoration as its aim. It is the shepherd's crook And the rod that reaches out to guide the sheep, to bring him from the precipice, though he may be journeying through the valley of the shadow of death. Secondly, in this effort, we are commanded to have tireless grace. I was going to use the word indefatigable because it's fun to say. Indefatigable, I taught that one to justice. It just means you cannot grow weary. You can't be tired. I've been working on simplifying my messages some. Yet I couldn't resist interjecting that word. Tireless grace. Listen again, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times seven, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. This 490 illustration in, the context, in context illustrates to us that when we are working through difficulties in our lives and difficulties in the church, that the call is that we are to have tireless grace. And if we grow weary in well-doing, we pray for His Holy Spirit to sovereignly bolster our efforts to give us strength. And where do we go? We go to His prescribed means We go to prayer, we go to counsel with believers, we go to accountability with a brother, we go to disciplined reading of the Holy Scriptures, prayer meetings together in His church, we go to those oases that fill us again with the strength that we need to continue patiently and with forgiveness indefinitely in some of these situations. More on that next month as we explore that theme of forgiveness and long-suffering which follows through the end of the chapter. Finally, this morning, let me close with an illustration, an application. We could ask ourselves the consequence, or we could ask ourselves the question, what are the consequences of God's church, Christ's church, being unfaithful in this regard to judge rightly and to settle our disputes in a biblical way using Christ's prescribed means? And we could ask ourselves if we, as I judge it, are generally in America today, and an abysmal failure at these things, are we experiencing some of these very consequences in our midst today? I think the answer is absolutely yes to both. There are consequences, and we are experiencing them. You know, years ago, when the uh, Roman Empire was in a state of decay, pagan systems of jurisprudence had fallen apart, and the people, though they did not confess Christ in many cases, knew they could not trust justice to be delivered to them through the local magistrates began to beseech the church. The salt and light's effect was particularly dramatic in this decaying society. We, I submit to you, in the future, if present trends continue, have the same opportunity. But are we meeting that standard? Are we judging between ourselves rightly in such a way that onlookers, even the unbelievers and pagans, might look at the church and say, Boy, that was wisdom That was common sense applied. They seem to use a standard that is not arbitrary and objective. Perhaps they can help me with my ethical dilemma. Would that that would be the case. It could be the case even now. Because as you read the headlines that come out each day, courts are proving, again, a dismal failure at adjudicating court cases rightly. They're shooting from the hip. They're totally arbitrary. They don't know what the standard of righteousness is. They don't know where law comes from. And they're ruling com- when complete lawless nonsense. So it isn't coming upon us to shore up our efforts in that regard. Let me submit to you that one consequence of the breakdown of the church's role and responsibility in rightly adjudicating our relationships you can look no farther than the ubiquitous, that means just commonplace divorce in the church. It's the same as in the world. This ought not be. It ought not be named among us the way it is in the world. Why is this the case? Well, oftentimes when things get rough in relationships, we can't settle disputes between each other as spouses. We run to the courts of the pagans instead of seeking arbitration through the church. Oh, it was interesting. I use this illustration simply because I felt in the providence of God at apropos yesterday my dad printed off a 25-page affidavit that is actually a criminal complaint of a man who does not want his marriage to dissolve, who, according to the complaint, as far as I can tell seems reasonable, has committed no crime, has done nothing legitimately biblically wrong to warrant divorce, yet the state, through no-fault divorce laws, is requiring that his marriage be dissolved, And I read through this, and I realized this man has spent four years in prison on principle. And I wondered to myself, could it be that the pain that these 25 pages represent, which is just one among thousands and thousands, perhaps millions, broken relationships, could be in large part due to the church's negligence and dealing rightly, and dealing well, and raising the standard of biblical jurisprudence in our own situations that we have among us. In the context of our frayed culture, thus in conclusion, let us pray for the church to salt and light this depraved world with our just arbitration of offenses. It might just be that the judiciary of this nation, as it continues to implode, pagans might seek out once again the institution, namely Christ church, that is entrusted and commissioned to rightly divide the preeminent law book of all of history, the inscripturated Word of God, the Bible, which was written by the judge of the living and the dead. We certainly have no excuses for not following the rule of faith and practice and righteousness. Let us pray that we would repent in this regard. And the Lord would equip us for this call. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray in light of your scriptures that you would strengthen us. We're just a small corner of your church that covers this globe. But we need to be faithful as far as it depends on us and as far as it is needful to diligently apply your word, even when it's difficult. I pray that you would give us grace indeed to do that. Give us grace, especially to be long-suffering, Lord, as we deal with our easily offended souls often and also the offenses that sometimes freely come in a fallen world. But let us do so in a way that would evidence and would manifest the superior love of Christ and forgiveness motivated by meditation and the experience of the reality and purchasing power of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. And all that you might be glorified to Jesus your church would be strengthened to pro- and your church would be strengthened to proclaim your holy name and it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray amen